Recorded live. Good late evening, everybody, and welcome to a Saturday edition of Political Straight Talk. I am your host, Fabian, also known as the Political Superman, and this is podcast number 48063. We can re- be reached at Fabian at FabianStory.com. That's with an A, F-A-B-I-A-N, at FabianStory.com with comments, questions, uh, suggestions for shows. But let's keep it professional if you are uh, condescending, rude, or threatening in any way. We will not read your email. We will just delete you. Goodbye. Have a nice day. And what has become a recent custom here on Political Straight Talk, Joseph is joining us from the great state of Louisiana. We have uh, enjoyed his company so that we uh, we invite him back regularly to do programming and are uh, actually going to uh ask him to do some guest hosting stuff here in some coming up episodes. Uh, so, Joseph, how are you this evening? I'm well. Hope everyone's the same. You're blessed to be depressed, I guess. <laughs> um, first, we want to start out the show by sending our condolences to the families of the servicemen and maybe women. I'm not sure. I think it's just all men, servicemen that uh, lost their lives a couple of days ago in a crash. And I know that, uh, Joseph, as we were going off the air last night, uh, we had a discussion about them, and and four of them are from Louisiana? That's correct. The the accident uh, had four National Guard members from Louisiana, as well as um, seven Marines that were based out of uh, Camp Lejeune, in um, South in North Carolina. Well, I uh, I know that that you're with me when uh, when we say that our prayers and thoughts are definitely with these families. That while training accidents are very tragic, they unfortunately do happen. And training and live training, live fire training, as it's called, uh, even when there's not any bullets involved, uh, is necessary so that our troops are prepared. Uh, Otherwise, I think they would find a different way. Now, that, you know, we spend a lot of time on foreign affairs and and national defense and the military as a whole, and ironically, that leads us into one of tonight's uh, first and major topics. Uh, But first, I have to mention sponsors, and the first sponsor ESWSJ.com, the Wall Street Journal. Get the right news at the right time. Upper right-hand corner, political straight talk. Um, You'll get a discount uh, if you sign up. Right now, they're running a special. Uh, You'll get this special. It's 26 weeks for $26 of the Wall Street Journal delivered to your front porch, and they will put it on your front porch. Uh, $26 for 26 weeks is not a bad deal. Uh, On top of that, we have Chick-fil-A, where they did not invent the chicken, just the chicken sandwich, and a new company coming very soon that will be also a sponsor of this program is S&P Consulting. Uh, they're being rebranded uh, from uh, my old company, Story & Associates Consulting. going to be rebranded S&P Consulting. Uh, they will become a sponsor soon of this program as well. And this program, very soon, much like Front Porch Politics, uh, you will be able to find this show at uh, politicalstraighttalk.com. 
But the difference between some of these other uh, podcasts out there, we are going to run a live stream 24-7 of not only our work here over the past seven years, but we're going to run the work of other like-minded organizations and podcasts as well um, on our bandwidth, and it'll be running 24-7 live stream radio online radio format so stay tuned for that it's coming soon okay now uh, for sales pitch for today uh joseph one of the things that uh has been in the mood excuse me guys very unprofessional i apologize it's been in the news in recent days is the fact that uh president putin who uh by the way has autism has not been seen not been heard from, not been photographed or otherwise. As a matter of fact, the Kremlin's pretty much on lockdown. Um, what does that say to you as John Q. Citizen? It really doesn't surprise me to a certain extent just because of the fact that you had a major political figure in Russia who was killed only a, a week ago. Now, the Kremlin did come out and say that that President Putin was going to be meeting with the president of uh, Kazakhstan on Monday. If that happens, there's going to be photo ops, there's going to be press there, and there's going to be confirmation that he's still alive. Now, understanding what, what is Russia's government, and it's pretty much a division of hardliners and moderates who are fighting for control of the uh of the country. And you couple that in with the corruption and you really have a real house of cards there. We can we can look at the the recent history of Russia or the Soviet Union over the last hundred years with the number of people who rose to power and somehow disappeared and was had their uh their position replaced by someone else uh, one of my major my major professor would would joke about this that uh supreme leader caught cold and died and that's what happened he was probably murdered in his sleep or murdered in some fashion and another person rose to power this is the way that the Russian government has been operating for the last hundred years. The only difference is the name has changed. As far as what's going on in Russia right now, if Putin, Putin may just be in hiding. It's, and he's done this before, I believe, where he's yeah. no photo ops and no no this and no that. Putin just may be in hiding. He may have a he may really have a cold. He may have the flu. It, it's it's very un. It's we're unsure what's going on. Now, there may be some elements within the Russian government that's trying to take power. You saw the death of someone recently. He was an, uh, an opponent of Putin, but who's to say there's not a third faction that's reared his ugly head? that wants control of the country and the best way to do that is take out the leaders of one of the the, the two other opposition parties 
And I agree. I think that from the U.S.'s standpoint, I think the U.S. has one main concern, and that is where, how are the nuclear weapons of Russia being cared for and who's in control of those nuclear weapons? Uh, all of us have known that since the late 80s that um, our biggest threat of a dirty bomb making it into the U.S. is through Russian nuclear technology. So I think from a U.S. standpoint, their top concern is if there is, in fact, something wrong with Putin, then who's in control of the nukes and what faction comes to rise? Because, you know, looking from Mikhail Gorbachev, and and we don't even have to go any further back than Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev to Boris Yeltsin to Putin, um, probably the most freedom-minded one of the three was Gorbachev. Uh, Boris Yeltsin came in, and there was not necessarily a coup d'etat, but it was pretty close that that put Putin in full power. And he's never relinquished it. But he's former KGB, so, you know, several issues there. Uh, There had been some talk uh, in different communities in recent months that they felt that uh, the factions that were anti-Putin were gaining a lot of traction within the government uh, and within the Kremlin itself. And this may, um, this act here may lend... Uh, some credence to that. Uh, I don't think this is as simple as a common cold, not to counteract you, but I I don't think it's as simple as a common cold, just based on what I'm seeing the United States uh, do in response. And even Britain has taken some steps. Um, Because it seems to me that if it was just a cold or the, the president of Russia was whatever, that the U.S. and Britain would not be reacting in the way that they are. One thing you also have to look at is the foreign policy of this president. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm steering off track for a minute now, but you have President Obama, who's had a fairly weak foreign policy, and the Russian government has seen that. That's one reason why they invaded Crimea. They wouldn't have done that under Bush. I don't think they would have done that under Clinton. But they see the U.S. as a paper tiger at this point. And they're, Putin and the Russian army decided they're going to go in, they're going to take Crimea, because they need a, a warm water port. And the end goal is to go is to have really all the oil reserves in the Middle East. Because if you you really look at it, the Middle East countries have aligned themselves with Russia. Syria has for sure. Iraq under uh, Saddam Hussein had. And the um, Iranians, they're all in, in, in deep with Russia at this point. And there was always a threat of Russia gaining a foothold in the Middle East and it being a choke point for Russia controlling the oil, not just the natural gas that goes into Europe. And what's going on in Russia right now, 
it's uncertain, but it's quite um, understandable for Russia, for the United States, and for the UK to react to the way they're they are, because it would be a strategic move by the Russians if anything happened to one choke off the uh the uh the fuel that's coming out of that country into Europe. And of course there's the nuclear issue also. Russia has about four thousand nuclear warheads still left within their borders. Many of them we don't know the status of because we don't have we don't have the inspectors like we did in the uh, early nineties and even the 2000s. So it's uncertain where these scientists are who are creating these bombs or who had created these bombs and what is the status of their nuclear arsenal. We All we know is there's a little black box, just like the President of the United States has, in the Kremlin with the President of Russia. I agree, and I, I do agree with some of the steps that the U.S. has taken, and I agree with your analysis of the foreign policy of our administration. So we're in agreement, and I think that US, the U.S. and Great Britain, uh, and probably Israel as well, are looking at this saying, you know, this isn't good. Now, if Putin is doing an act, then it's in poor taste and bad timing. Um, because, you know, he's got his hands full as much as he says he's not involved with the whole deal with the Ukraine. He is, in fact, involved in that and very heavily. So, you know, Russia doesn't want to open up multiple fronts, as it were, even with something as tiny as the Ukraine. Uh, I'm, do you think in, in your in your heart of hearts, knowledge of knowledge, what do you think is going on in the Kremlin right now? I think if there was a coup d'etat, we would know something by now. It may not be the general public, but the CIA would definitely know something. And I think to elicit the response that the U.S. and the Great and Great Britain have done over the last uh, 48 hours, there's there's something there's 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 some teeth to this story or to the rumors. Right, and I don't think I don't think your your main news entities all run with a rumor. I, you know, one of them maybe, two of them maybe, but all of them now are starting to really pick up this story. The White House has clamped down. Um, a lot of things that, if you know where to look, are really beginning to say, hey, some interesting stuff going on. Now, that brings us into another topic that really I kind of debated on on going into, uh, leading into this program, but I think it, it merits a look, given that we have issues going on in the Ukraine where we have troops. We have troops in Korea. We have troops in Germany, uh, but Germany is a safe place, so to speak, and they're mainly there as a hub 
We have troops in Iraq. We have troops in Afghanistan. Uh, we have special ops in many other countries around the world. And the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines all have uh, large chunks of troops um, labeled as, or units labeled as not fit for combat. And we have budget uh, constraints that are in place. Is this a time for a Congress and a Senate to, well, Congress is the whole antibiotic, the whole enchilada. So the House of Reps and the Senate, is this a time for them to go and begin to look at the military's budget again and say, maybe we've made a mistake by uh, all of these drastic cuts? I think it's important to the U.S. interest to keep as many personnel around the world as possible. Like uh, some of the places you said, like Korea, there is an ongoing war in Korea. There's been an armistice for 65 years in Korea. Sorry. Yeah, 60 years in Korea. 60 years. There has been, we have troops in Germany which are going to stay there forever thanks to the 2 plus 4 treaty of 1990, I believe. Yes. There are certain places in the world where U.S. forces will be needed forever. Japan, we have a, we have played, we have troops in Okinawa, Okinawa all along Japan's western coast. We have troops in England. We have we have troops in Africa, certain parts of Africa. We have troops in the Middle East. We have troops in South America. We have troops in even. <laughs> in Canada and other parts of North America. It's vital for U.S. interests to keep troops and ships and planes and all of the might of U.S. military functioning around the world. With that being said, is there cuts that can be made? The answer is yes. There's a lot of miscellaneous spending, a lot of just port that's doled out to the military. But as far as saying we need to cut the personnel pay, no, you do not. The real well, problem they're not, is they're not the cutting problem. the per- go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. Well I was just gonna say that that yeah some personnel pay got cut. I, I will concede that. But we're having troop levels brought down to levels that given all of the conflicts in the world and even with our technological advances, even the fact that, you know, now we can fly jets without humans at the cockpit, uh, all of these things, I think that we're making a mistake by downsizing all of these military branches, especially the Army, because, you know, the military has special functions. For example, the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps has 500,000 Marines at any given time. Okay, that's the number. That's where they are. Um, it may fluctuate a couple of, you know, couple of uh, 10,000 uh, troops, but other than that, the Marines generally have 500,000. And the Marines are, for lack of a better term, the President's personal army. Okay? Many people don't know that. The Marine Corps is the President's personal army. 
he can do with the Marines what he wants to do without congressional approval for any reason anywhere in the world. Now, thanks to some war powers given to President Bush, um, some of that stuff today would be covered under uh, those particular uh, orders. But generally, the Marines are controlled by the president. If you'll notice, they guard the president's house. That's why they're his personal army. Um, Air Force is being cut, but more specifically, they are losing... uh, they're having certain uh, classes of fighter jets being taken out with nothing to replace them. And even with Boeing and Lockheed Martin, who are the two, usually the top two uh, for fighter aircraft, uh, you know, the Obama administration does not have them working on any new project, anything to replace these planes that they're taking out of service. And in the Navy, you know, look at the state of our, uh, we have a supercarrier that's currently being built uh, that will rival that of the Reagan. But the Reagan is the only true supercarrier that we've got in the waters. The George H.W. would be the second one. uh, With one currently, um, it's now past the production it's now past the uh, what they would call pre-production phase. They've got it almost all welded in and whatnot. But it's still several years down the road. And look at the carrier that China just put in the waters. Okay. Um, and then we can, you know, that went to the Navy. And we can go around to the Army. The Army is generally the grunts, the ground troops, the people that push through. And they've cut their levels Uh, by just an astronomical amount of troops. They want the Army to be thinned down to 400,000 troops. Well, that's, A, less than the Marine Corps. Um, And the Marines have a very specific function. They're very specific in what their job is. Um, Is it safe to say that our troop level should be at 2 million troops? Now, the argument can be had that the National Guard can be called up and that we've got, you know, we've got the Guardsmen, we've got those that are, that are on reserve and even those that are on ready reserve. But do you not think that cutting the troop levels to the numbers that they're cutting them is dangerously low? Well, it is. In the past, the U.S. military was able to fight one and a half wars. That was the troop. Um, that was the cert, That was the initial um, number of airmen, seamen, marines, and army members that you can fight a war like World War One or World War Two, and still have enough people left over to fight a small half war, something like the Iraq War. Now, if we cut the number of troops, and it could be because their argument is of the technology, that we have drones, we have this and we have that, that can substitute for personnel on the ground. In hindsight, you do need boots on the ground, and you do need people to do certain things that technology can't 
have a military that's being gutted because our adversaries around the world will look at this and say, well, the U.S. can't do this anymore. Look at the number of troops they have. So maybe we can invade Crimea, or maybe we can invade Taiwan, or maybe we can invade Iraq or Afghanistan or what have you. Our enemies are always going to look at this. They have, they have intel, more intel than we probably have. I mean, you and My, I. Sure. And they're always going to base. They're always going to base their next move on how well prepared the other player is. It's like a game of chess. Right. Well, I've got, you know, you look at, and again, without without saying certain things that shouldn't be said, but you look at different theaters, okay? Well, okay, let's come back to this. We do know that every male between the ages of 18 and 35 have to register with the Selective Service. Okay, we also know that at any given point in time, Congress can reactivate the draft. Okay? But which would you rather have? A draftee in the service that is there because they have to be or a volunteer into the service who's there because they want to be? Someone that wants to be there. Right. Well, my thing is, is that the levels... And I looked this up as you were talking this. The level of individuals that are trying to join the military services right now aren't at post-9-11 numbers, but they're still fairly high. The biggest impediment to people joining the service is, number one, they don't like the commander-in-chief. They don't want to join until the current commander-in-chief is gone. And number two, the pay cut. Um, now, what most people don't know is that these people are being turned away. The Army, the Navy, the Marines, uh, Air Force, all of them are saying, look, you know, we're not taking anybody right now. But what happens the first time we've got to send a large contingent of troops out and, God forbid, they start getting killed, well, what do we don't have? We don't have replacements. Do you think that and truly, let's think about this. We've got a conflict and there's a bunch of dead bodies coming home. Are people going to run out to sign up? Some are, oh, yes, no. because they're, they're patriots. But most aren't. And then what are we going to have to do? We're going to have to institute the draft. Then what's going to happen? We're going to have Bill Clinton's all over again. Well, you look at what happened during World War One and World War Two. You had that sense of patriotism. You had people that were signing up, but you also had people that were drafting, drafted. But you also had a different time in America. You didn't have the culture, the, the cultural revolution as you had in the late 60s. I think everything changed with the, the Vietnam War because you had nearly 60,000 American lives that were lost in this war. Many of them were draftees that didn't want to go in the first place. Right. Not to mention the tens of thousands 
that fleed to Canada or Mexico or other countries that accepted them because they didn't want to fight a war that they figured they were going to die in. The biggest problem with Vietnam was we didn't use the full might of the U.S. military. We pussyfooted around in, in jungles and, and rice paddies, and we got tens of thousands of Americans killed for no reason. Right. And then we just well, gave the country up to the to the Viet Cong anyway. Well, what I have, you know, that is one of the things I get asked about a lot is Vietnam. And one of the things I tell, first of all, my father was there, okay? And, yeah, I won't tell you what he's told me, but I will tell you this. Number one, Vietnam is the prime example of a politician, citizen commander-in-chief, literally trying to be a military strategist and fight the war from the White House. You can't do it. Number two, okay, we didn't have a clear mission. Why were we over there? Okay, at the time, the job was to protect South Vietnam from North Vietnam. But at the same time, those that were fighting alongside of us during the day were the very ones putting on the VC uniform and shooting at us at night. And people fought a political war over there. So as bodies started to come home and there was no clear mission, no clear definition of a mission, the commanders didn't even know what they were doing, you had people like Hanoi Jane going over to uh, provide aid and comfort to an enemy. The minute she stepped foot back on U.S. soil, she should have been put in handcuffs, charged with treason, tried, convicted, and strung up. I have no use for her even today. I will not watch any movie she's in, period. But my point is that when we came into Iraq and we came into Afghanistan, when... When those towers fell, there were people lined up around the streets at recruiting stations. And unfortunately, when something on this soil happens again of that nature, and unfortunately, it will happen, people. Don't think that it won't. People will line up again. But we have allowed, and Joseph, you you can agree with this, I think, we have allowed the media to dictate wars, number one. And number two, we've allowed video games to dictate wars because so many people I see now have this concept that a battle is like a video game when, in fact, it's not. It's deadly. It's dirty. It's nasty. It's it's frightening. And a lot of people just don't seem to get it. And number three, we have raised such a culture of pacifists and idiots, that I don't know if a lot of this generation's got the heart to fight. Both what of my brothers, you? both of my brothers like playing the game Call of Duty. Yeah. They get, they get each of the, they get every new uh, game that comes out. And I, every now and then I'll watch it, I'm like, this is just, there's no way war could be like this. Now something that I did, Something I did when I was younger, I was playing paintball, and it just so happens that a friend was a army ranger, and just I just watched him for a little while, 
and he stayed in his position. He would watch, and he would shoot only when there was an opportunity to make a kill. And that's the kind of training that he had while he was in the Rangers. People nowadays, they don't realize what war is because they see war simulations on video games. They'll see war simulations on television. And it's nowhere near the reality of what war really is. And for the most part, I think that's one of the reasons why you have so many people that are coming back with PTSD because they're ill-prepared for the reality of what they're getting themselves into. And I agree with you. And I think that that's a disservice to not only the soldiers, soldiers' families, but we're doing a disservice to the people that we vowed to protect. And it really just, you know, (laughs) gets in my crawl, as it were. But Worse than that, and this is the perfect segue into our, our, I guess what we can call next to our last topic since time to run them out, but uh, one of the topics that we were going to approach last night and decided not to was the VA and how the Veterans Administration, especially the hospitals and the rehab houses and the various uh, nuances of the system, have in my opinion, failed our veterans. And we'll start with a story that's in the news that I can link to my dad just to give you a personal context of the story. It says that many of the strong painkillers that the VA hospital is handing out is ending up on the streets of Phoenix. Well, from a personal example, my dad went to the VA and got medication for uh, painkillers at the time for torn rotator cuffs and and some other stuff. And they gave him enough pills to kill a horse. Uh, There was so many pills that he had that hell, he could have sold half of them and still had enough to do what he needed to do. And so disservice number one, creating addicts. Number two, you know, many, many servicemen have died waiting to get in for appointments. Some were sent letters of death and their appointments canceled and they were, in fact, alive, barely, but alive. Um, they changed the head of the VA system. They haven't really changed at the hospitals, but they did change the VA secretary. Um, what do we do to make the VA system better and more equipped to deal with our soldiers? And how does the public help in making that happen, in your opinion? First off, you privatize it. You give every service member a health savings account, paid for by the government, and you let them go to the hospital of their choice. If they want to go to the to the local hospital, which has wonderful service, let them do it because they deserve it. The problem with any public assistance is that it's run by bureaucrats who really don't give a damn. 
best example, how much fun do you usually have at your local DMV? <laughs> and well, you're it, laughing. It, it would be hours part. of wait. It would be hours of wait because they don't get in any hurry. However, I have to tell you, Tennessee implemented a system a couple of months ago where you can get your appointment online. You show up, and it doesn't matter if that line is two miles long. When your appointment time hits, you're at the front of the line. So uh, I utilized that, and I had no problem. So my most recent experience with the DMV, since you can get an appointment online, happy, happy, happy. To coin a phrase from a family from uh, Louisiana. But I know where you're going with that. I just decided to have a little fun because I knew where you were going. <laughs> but for the most part, if you look at any government agency, oh, it's, it's awesome. pretty much run by bureaucrats who don't care, who puts in a next window sign so they could take their 15-minute break. Right. No matter who's in line and all they're there no for is to get line or what they're there for, it's just whatever. And it's right. usually... It's usually staffed by some of the most inopt people on the in the on the planet. Yes. Whose only qualifications is they pass a test that's geared to sixth graders. Yes. Amen. And they're protected by a worthless employees union. Correct. So nobody tries to get rid of them, and the people that could make a difference in these agencies won't apply because they don't want to deal with all of the bureaucratic red tape that they're going to have to deal with. Last summer, I met my uh, my, my senator, who's David Bitter, who's probably going to be the next governor of Louisiana. He visited my parish. What Bitter does, and I have, I have yet to see this with any other senator from Louisiana, he makes a point to visit every parish within a two-year period and it just so happens that he was in my parish over the summer. He takes questions from the audience, and my question was, the, with the VA scandal, do you see this as foreshadowing or a, a prophetic vision of what Obamacare can be for the country? And he actually applauded the fact that I could link those two together. Well, I'm surprised people, others haven't. Most people don't see that what Obama, what the Democrats and Obamacare and Obama are racing towards with universal health care. We already have witnesses to that in the VA system. Also, you have a Louisiana. Louisiana has a charity system, and last year about this time, I was in that charity system because I didn't have health insurance. And it was pretty much a sea of humanity with people who didn't care. You would wait. I, I literally waited four hours to be told that my doctor was at the end and I had to reschedule. Then that little vein on my forehead started popping out, but I quietly walked away. Now, this is what veterans who have fought and for our freedom, that's what they're facing in various VA hospitals around the country. And it's easy for the people who don't care or the people who are just collecting a check to give you 
prescription painkillers to make the pain go away when they're not really doing anything further than that. My, your be, the best solution would be to privatize it and say, here's a health savings account paid for by the government. You go to the best hospital in the world and get treated. Hell, that's what the Congress, that's what Congress does. Congress has one of the best health care systems in the, in the world just because we elected them. Yes, that is true. They do. And I am, okay, well, now that you mentioned that, the wonderful federal government has a program right now, and if you follow the news, you will find that it's been the top story in the news the last couple of days, is that they have, in fact, offered that if you have to wait longer than so many days for your appointment, I think it's 45, that you can take this health card and go to someone outside of the VA system to be treated. But it has to meet certain criteria. A lot of veterans that are trying to use it are turned away. Those that can use it don't know that they can use it. Um, A rocky start. But I'm with you. I do think that if we took the entire veteran system, all of it, dealing with medical treatment, halfway houses, all of it, and privatized it, under the understanding that levels of certain, number one, every veteran was treated. doesn't matter if you're a World War II vet, Korean vet, Vietnam vet. If you have the title vet after your name, and you have earned an honorable discharge or a medical discharge, you're treated. Every last one of them. It breaks my heart. You see a Vietnam veteran be treated sometimes the way they're treated even today. I think that especially Vietnam veterans, they deserve their parade. Just so you know, for those of you that that know me know, we're putting together one for this summer and that we plan to have 16 parades across the 4th Congressional District of the state of Tennessee because they deserve their parade. They deserve dignity and respect, and they deserve the treatment. A lot of them have mental health issues that they've had since 1974 or even earlier. So I think the idea of privatizing it is awesome. But I think if you privatize it, you you privatize the entire health care, whether it's mental health, dental, vision, medical, uh, any of the therapies that go with it, all of it. I think you privatize it. And whatever agency comes up with the best plan that gets the most people the correct treatment and does it in a way that is expedited, I think that you give them bonuses from the federal government. I think that they get just like if they, you know, just like if you have a contract to have the interstate repaired. Okay, well, the feds are the ones that give the interstate contracts through TDOT or whatever DOT, whatever your local state Department of Transportation. Well, if you're working on a federal contract, if you get done with that federal contract ahead of time, they have benchmarks. If you pass your Department of Transportation inspection and you're done six months ahead of schedule, you're getting a few million dollars 
in the coffers. Extra. I think they ought to do that to these insurance companies and all the, you know, whoever takes these. I think they offer it to all of your major health carriers, and they offer a veteran's medical plan. And this veteran's plan is paid for by the feds that not one dime should come out of a veteran's pocket, period. I don't care. No veteran should have to pay for their health care. And I know that sounds socialist to me, but it really, they shouldn't. Do you realize up until about 10 years ago, if a if a soldier was wounded on the battlefield, he still had to pay for his treatment? Yes, I did know that, actually. And the person who changed that was your former boss? The person that did what? The person that changed that was your former boss. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm well aware of that. That there is no person, there is no person on this planet, well, in this country, that cared for, respected, and loved the military more than President George W. Bush. Nobody. And his just wasn't lip service either, uh, Joseph. He he proved it, and he still proves it. And the caveat I had away from the current administration, you had the Obamas who went to the West Coast because um, Obama needed to make a propaganda film with um, Jimmy Kimball. Yeah, two separate airplanes. And they took two separate airplanes because the president was going to that VA clinic, that VA hospital in in Phoenix, uh, in Phoenix to um, for a photo op. And the the vice the um, the first lady wanted nothing to do with the troops, so she had to get home and I guess tend to her herb garden. Well, I'm well aware because it for the president and even excuse me even the excuse me again even the numbers were incorrect. Um. The news is reporting it's about $200,000 per flight hour of Air Force One, but that's closer to 300000 per hour. Now, when we say flight hour, that doesn't mean just when that plane's in the air. Anytime that plane is not at Andrews Air Force Base, it is approximately 200000 per hour that that plane is not at Andrews, because number one, <laughs> there are two planes anywhere they go. Okay, number two, uh, you've got security. You've got just in flight time. They were talking about just flight time today. It costs for the president to fly from Andrews Air Force Base to California. It costs the taxpayers about a million bucks one way. When Michelle got in the plane and she flew, it cost the taxpayers about fifty thousand uh, per hour, and it takes three hours exactly to fly from coast to coast. So we paid one hundred fifty thousand on her way back. So you know we paid nearly half a million dollars 
extra just in flight time for her, not counting the separate Secret Service details she had, okay? And when she travels, she's given diamond protection uh, formations and various other security measures that the president has. So it's like having a hopeful uh, protected detail. So there's two of them. So I don't understand why they just didn't stay together. And if she didn't want to be with the troops anywhere near the VA, she could have just stayed on the plank. I think that was childish, it was stupid, and it was uncalled for, and it shows such utter disrespect of the Obamas to do that. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. They took private vacations. Oh, listen, you're not telling me nothing. I think it is disgusting and rude. And I will tell you something about President Bush, John Q. Public, that you all did not know. That man did not travel on holidays. If he did, he went to his ranch in Texas that's already got a full... His, his, his home in Texas was guarded just like the White House, with fences, with outposts, with everything that the White House has. Okay, so there was no difference whether he was there or not. He did not travel on holidays unless he went to see the troops. You know why he didn't? It's because any time he moves from Pennsylvania Avenue or from his ranch, it takes three or 400 other people away from their families, and he did not want to do that. And this president is jumping off to Hawaii, jumping off those places. For him to travel to Hawaii, for those of you that don't know, we pay for a week to him to be in Hawaii uh, at the various uh, places he's been. It costs the taxpayers about 15 to $20 million a week when he's on these vacations. And if the uh, the first daughters and everybody are there, you know, a lot of times they'll all go their own separate ways. Well, guess what? Those daughters have full protective details when they're out and about. So look at all the money that we're... Yeah, you've already got me on a topic. We should never went down that road because it infuriates me to know the amount of money that we're spending. And I'm okay, let me go on the record as saying, I am perfectly okay with spending money to protect the president and the family. I'm okay with them having, uh, because the president's the president no matter where he's at, number one, and he's president 24 hours a day, seven days a week, no matter what he does. Okay? I understand that. But with that comes certain responsible decisions that the president should make. And basically what it is, is we took a ghetto chump from Chicago and gave him a basically an unlimited amount of cash and resources, and he is using it up while he's got the opportunity to use it. And that I have a problem with. There's my rant, Joseph. <laughs> uh, I couldn't say it a bit myself. So... Uh, it's very, very annoying, uh, and and I could even go even to the house and how they have treated that house. And several of the the White House stewards are, are even if they don't like a presidential family, you'd never know it. 
and a couple of the stewards have said that the Obama girls are very disrespectful to the house, very disrespectful to areas of that house that have a lot of history, and one room in particular, the Lincoln bedroom. So, uh, you know, the president, I mean, it's his house. He has control of that entire house. All 132 rooms he can do with what he wants to. And the disrespect in which they have treated their predecessors has just absolutely blown my mind. It really has. For the people who don't know this, the Lincoln bedroom was actually where Abraham Lincoln ran the Civil War. Yes. That's why it's... He didn't sleep there. Well, actually, he did to a certain extent. But that it, that was the Oval Office of the Civil War. Yes, sir. And there's and, there's hidden walls in there. It's pretty neat. It's a pretty neat little place. So when you hear that the Clintons were selling... Uh, yes. Access to the Lincoln bedroom to the Chinese... You can understand why the Lincoln bedroom was so important to this country. Well, they've got <laughs> the history and the heritage in that house. It's like you're not supposed to take pictures inside the house. Most people don't know that. And it's not for security. Well, I mean, it could be considered security reasons. But you're not allowed to take pictures in there because the flashes, even on smartphones, damage a lot of the paintings that hang on the walls. Just like at a museum. Yes. Same same thing. Uh, and there is just... I, I wish I could explain the beauty and the splendor inside that house. Like if you stand up really close, and, and especially near the Truman Valley, if you look on either side of, of that addition, you will see the burn marks where the British tried to burn the house. And people are like, well, our house has been painted since then. For the most part, yes. But you can still see the dad bloom burn marks. You can see the burn marks inside the house. They have left certain burn marks that were there in 1812. So, uh, just, it, it's amazing, that house. And it's also amazing the other disrespect and contempt that the current occupants of that house treat it. And it just, it amazes me. It, it, you know, even, and I have no love for Jimmy Carter. None. Zip, zero, zilch, nada. But Jimmy Carter did not treat the house with the disrespect that those people have treated that house. And truthfully, I cannot wait for them to be gone. Well, Absolutely. You, could go, you could almost go down to South Chicago and look at public housing and see how the, the residents there treated their public house. And, you know, if you're from <laughs> Chicago, the apple really doesn't fall far from the tree. Woo! I wasn't going to use that comparison. But on that note, we are out of time. And, you know, I guess <laughs> I'll tell you something after the recording's over. I, I, I just, wow. What a way to end the show. The Chicago Projects. <laughs>
on the south side. And if you've ever been there, <laughs> they're pretty rough. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, freedom is not free. Please thank a local serviceman and woman, veteran or active or otherwise, for their service. Thank the police and the fire and the other service industries that help keep us safe and respond when others don't want to. My motto when I was a firefighter was, I fight what you fear. And so do the soldiers. You've got to stand for something or you will fall for anything. Until next time, everybody have a good night.